Good morning, Kanakri. Good afternoon, Victoria. And good evening, Chittagong. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Germany's anti-terrorism campaign in Africa and a prisoner swap between Belgium and Iran. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks, Ethan. I had a whirlwind trip to New York at the end of last week, uh, so I'm kind of just recovering. I don't know quite where I am, but I'm told I'm in Chicago. So, My goodness. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You'll be in the <laughs> platinum club of every airline in, in a matter of no time. I know, right? Yeah, I've got to go to DC next week, too, for a conference. So it's. I think it's no rest for the wicked is the lesson here. Give me the points, John. Give me all of those points that you're <laughs> racking up. Uh, but uh, uh, let's get along here. John, just... Lay it on me. Huh? What? Well, what's the story? What's the story? I, I'm not doing any lead-in today. Oh, I, sorry. Okay. Well, that's better. I can understand that question. You you, you, you speak in a different language. Okay. So the first story I think we want to cover today, um, which, you know, you did a beautiful job of introducing there with lots of context, um, <laughs> is the, uh, the Bundestag, so the German parliament, they've extended the German military's mission in Mali. Um, the extension was, I think, predicted since kind of late last year, uh, but it was a, a pretty controversial issue inside the German parliament. It was approved by, you know, not a massive margin, um, approved, I think it was 375 votes to 263, um, with the opposition bloc calling for troops to withdraw by the end of this year. Instead, what the Bundestag ended up passing was a mandate that will allow German troops to stick around in Mali until the 31st of May next year, so about a, a year from now. So what are German troops doing in Mali in the first place? Yeah, so the, these troops were deployed in uh, 2013, so 10 years ago, um, as part of a UN peacekeeping mission known as MINUSMA, or, and, and you know, bear with me on this one, but the Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali. You've got to try saying that 10 times faster. And th- these names, I mean, multidimensional and integrated, <laughs> it's just, yeah, well. The, the problem is it's not even, it's not even that good of an acronym. No. It's like not. usually you throw these words in to make a, a, a an acronym that sounds like a word, but MINUSMA is nothing. No, exactly right. And I know that almost for, for sure that every department involved in this mission will have wanted to get their word in the name of it. <laughs> so that's how these <laughs> these Frankensteins are a cooked A year-long process. Yeah, yeah really. Um, but we digress. The, the mission, MINUSMA, I'm just going to call it the mission from now on, um, was responsible for um, stabilizing Mali after a military coup and a subsequent uh, insurgency. Um, it's not been easy work. It's actually considered the deadliest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. There's been 304 peacekeepers killed out of a force of about 15,000. Uh, and, and several of those 304 killed were German. Um, you know, and the mission really hasn't gone according to plan. It hasn't achieved its objectives. More than a decade later, Mali is you know, still suffering through military coups and the insurgency that started 10 years ago in, in the north of the country is as robust as it ever was. Um, which has led several of the mission participants like Britain and the Ivory Coast and France, famously, to withdraw from the mission. Right. Yeah, I remember France withdrawing from Mali last year. Yeah, it, it was a big deal. Um, and it was a major turning point for French military operations across Africa. Um, they not only withdrew from Mali, 
uh, but France pulled its forces out of Burkina Faso, where they'd been fighting Islamist insurgents for almost a decade there as well. We've talked about that on this show before, um, and we've made the point that the, front, that the French mission in the Sahel, which is that strip of dry land kind of right across Africa where Mali and Burkina Faso are, um, that, could, that mission could argue, arguably be said to have held a fairly similar kind of cultural significance in France as the wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan di- did in the US. It, that might be overstating it a little, but you get my point. Um, anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that France's withdrawal was a really big deal in France. But in contrast, the peacekeeping mission um, holds you know, nowhere near the same sort of emotional attachment in Germany. Um, and you know, perhaps the perhaps the Germans have watched the and learned from the U.S. experience in Afghanistan and and France's experience last year, um, and they've realised that there's a right way and a wrong way to kind of withdraw from these long deployments. Maybe they want to take a little more time to to get it right. Not to mention the fact that Russia's footprint in Africa is growing too, right? Yeah, and that's been a major point of tension between Germany and Mali um, and and probably a big reason why Germany has decided to stick around a little bit longer. Uh, Last April, Germany's foreign minister visited Mali um, and she told the country's leader who had taken over in a military coup in 2020 um, that she wanted to see, and I'm quoting here, no cooperation with Russian actors here on the ground. Um, You know, her wishes have not exactly been heeded. Um, in fact, during the same press conference where the German foreign minister made that appeal, the Malian foreign minister said that, and again, quoting, Mali would make its own choices according to its concerns, just as Germany makes its own choices according to its concerns. Huh. Um, so it's like, you know, that's a fairly pointed rebuttal, right? Um, and, and now, you know, as we talk, the country is flooded with mercenaries from the Wagner Group, um, the famous Russian para, uh, private military contracting group. Um, and they're able to conduct anti-terrorism missions in a way that, you know, militaries from Western governments simply can't, by which I mean brutally and and very often criminally. And what does that mean for Mali's future? Well, who knows? Um, maybe Wagner's tactics will work and help to suppress violence across the Sahel. Um, you know, given Wagner's track record elsewhere, I'm pretty skeptical of that. Um, but I think the, the key point here is Mali is a very important country. It's the eighth largest country in Africa by area with a, with a sizable population, um, increasingly in need of humanitarian assistance. Uh, and instability there means instability across the region since so many Malians have been forced to leave their homes. Um, so, you know, while Germany's focus over the next year will be likely on a ordered, orderly, dignified military withdrawal, I don't think the rest of the world can afford to give up on Mali at, at the moment. I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of One Decision Podcast. And along with the former head of the British intelligence service MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, we speak with those who make decisions that shape our world. Each week, we have all new fascinating insights and in-depth conversations about the difficult choices that have global impact. We also explore the decisions that lie ahead. New episodes of One Decision drop every Thursday. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
All right, I'll give you a little more context this time. Next up, we are talking about a major prisoner exchange. So, John, I, I appreciate what's the it. story? Um, this is a story that's been in the back of our minds for a little while, um, and it was resolved sort of unexpectedly uh, ahead of the weekend. Um, so the story here is that Iranian and Belgian officials met in Oman on Friday and exchanged two men, Olivier van der Castille and uh, Asadollah Asadi, who were imprisoned for two very different reasons. Um, but by late Friday afternoon last week, both men had boarded planes from Muscat and were headed to their respective homes. Okay, so why did each of them end up in prison? And start with uh, Van de Castile. Yes, he of the excellent last name. Yes. Um, so he was an aid worker for the Norwegian Refugee Council who was working in Iran from 2015 to 2021. Uh, he was actually living in, in Tehran. But in February of last year, as he was packing up his things to head back to Belgium, uh, Iranian officials arrested him on espionage charges. Uh, and in January of this year, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison and 74 lashes for his alleged offences, which I think we should note were made without a whole lot of evidence, at least public evidence. Um, and by all accounts, his treatment in Iranian pre uh, prison was absolutely brutal. Uh, he spent much of his time in solitary confinement. He lost over 25 kilograms. Uh, and then there are all sorts of other details about his physical condition that uh, you know I don't think we need to share. Um, but suffice to say, his time in prison was was not pleasant. And and Asadi, how did he end up in Belgian prison? Well, Asadi was an Iranian diplomat. Uh, stationed in Austria, actually. And, and he was arrested by authorities while he was driving through Germany. We'll come back to why that's important. But he was accused of plotting to bomb a gathering of Iranian dissidents from the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Uh, they were holding their annual meeting in a suburb of Paris. Uh, there were actually 25,000 people who were supposed to attend this meeting, including uh, famous people such as New York City Mayor or former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. No. Yeah, Newt Gingrich was also supposed to be there. Really? So, so, yeah, so security was pretty high at this event. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, Asadi, uh, what, what they were doing at, at an event about the National Council of Resistance of Iran is anyone's guess, but that's neither here nor there. But ultimately, Asadi was sentenced to tw uh, in 2021 to about 20 years in prison, um, despite claiming diplomatic immunity which we've talked about on this show relatively recently. Uh, the court in Brussels pointed out that he wasn't entitled to such immunity since he was traveling outside Austria in uh, his country of residence or his country of accreditation um, when he was arrested. Very briefly, when I, when I was posted as a diplomat, it was a very well-known thing that when you left the country you were posted to, you didn't have diplomatic immunity. So either it's a little bit more complex here because of the EU and how they recognize each other or Assadi and the Iranian uh, the Iranian government were trying this argument on a little bit, I think. John, a little sidebar here. Why Oman as mediator? I feel like it's a country we don't hear much about even as we talk, you know, endlessly about its neighbors. Yeah, well, apparently its tourism industry is booming. Everyone wants to go there for the, the blue water and the luxe hotels, but that's not the point. I think you're right. <laughs> it's a country that flies a little under the radar in terms of its international reputation. And that's probably why it's able to serve as a mediator in these types of cases. Um, it's becoming a little bit of a trademark. Uh, the country, Oman has, you know, a pretty balanced foreign policy, by which I mean, um, you know, it's a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, for example, but it's also the only Gulf country that didn't join, uh, hasn't joined Saudi Arabia's bombing campaign against the Houthis in Yemen. So it's kind of balanced. Um, and it's also maintained close ties to the other pole of power in the region, Iran. And that was long before Saudi Arabia normalized relationships, uh, its relations with, with Iran. You know, I think it was also the first Gulf country to play host to an Israeli prime minister as well. So there's all these kinds of things that suggest that Oman doesn't really pick sides in the region. Um, and it's made it an indispensable partner for, for all those 
countries, um, you know, even outside the Middle East, I'd say. It's helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal in 2015 as well. Um, and it's, to the point of this case, consistently served as a mediator in prisoner swaps between the two sides of the Yemen civil war and uh, is mediating peace talks in the civil war right now. So it's really like at the core of these huge issues. Will Oman have more work ahead of it? It, it seems like these swaps are getting more common and honestly more complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've covered a bunch of these you know, already at International Intrigue. Um, there's obviously the the US basketball player, Brittany Griner, um, and she was exchanged for the, the Russian arms dealer. There's now another American in Russia, the journalist um, who's been imprisoned. Um, you know, it's not out of the question that he'll be exchanged at some point in the future. Um, you know, I think they've gotten more common because frankly, authoritarian regimes know that they can arrest these medium kind of profile people from Western democracies uh, and extract huge concessions for them. I'll just caveat, and, and, I, and I know that everyone knows this, but I'll caveat that we never know what's really going on behind the scenes. You know, it's not entirely out of the question that a Belgian aid worker, Van der Castile, was working as a spy, but it's just not very likely. And given how many spies Russia and Iran and these types of countries keep finding amongst the ranks of professional basketball players mm-hmm. and aid workers... You know, in my experience, it just strains credulity. You just wanted to say Vandy Castile again, but but I, that's I, right. I don't hold it against you. <laughs> it feels like a worrying trend, though. I mean, do you? How do we break this cycle? Yeah, it is, and and honestly, I'm not sure. Part of the key work of diplomats is to try and insulate these types of issues, thorny but sort of ultimately transactional issues, um, insulate them from the two countries' broader relationship. Um, but when when those arrests happen frequently and and for seemingly spurious reasons, keeping those things from poisoning the overall bilateral relationship just becomes much harder, right? Um, You know, look at Canada and China. Their relationship still hasn't recovered from the Huawei and and two Michaels case, which we discovered, uh, which we discussed a little while back. Um, And it's not likely to anytime soon. You know, Ethan, I really do hate to send folks off on on such a downer of a story uh, on a Monday, but I I am struggling to find the humor in this one, to be honest. (laughs) Far be it for me to try. Well, thanks, John. Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Sitting President Recep Tayyip Erdogan defeated Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu in the second round of Turkey's presidential election on Sunday. Most opinion polls ahead of the election predicted the opposition to defeat Erdogan, who's already served as Turkey's leader since 2002. A beloved 400-year-old tree in the middle of Freetown, Sierra Leone's capital, was felled by a storm last week. The 70-meter tree featured prominently on the country's banknotes and was a first stop for many foreign dignitaries, including Queen Elizabeth. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, I'm not the fastest reader on earth, and my local library only lets me take out books three weeks at a time, so I'm constantly returning them late. But I've never kept a book for as long as one library goer in California did. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see how long he had it. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday.